Federal Communications Commission's Chairman Ajit Pai Ajit supports the repeal of net neutrality. Chairman of the Federal Commission. <laughs> Defendants plan to repeal. Sadasha Gruba and Victor Figueroa. Okay. Hollywood celebrities and tech companies. I'm so cold. <laughs> Chris Perfett explains what's at stake. Oh, documentary. Change. In a, okay. <laughs> Good last show, everyone. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, it's so cold. Good afternoon from USC's Annenberg Media Center and welcome to From Where We Are from Annenberg Radio News. For Tuesday, November 28, 2017, I'm Charlotte Kim. First, a news update with Sam Newman. North Korea today fired a ballistic missile that landed in the Japanese Sea, escalating tensions between the United States and North Korea. The test is a further act of aggression by the communist nation defying President Trump's warnings to halt its weapons program. Former CIA Director and General David Petraeus spoke at USC today. He says the United States should keep conducting military exercises to pressure North Korea to de-escalate its nuclear program. Their word has not proven to be their bond repeatedly. They've made promise after promise. We've had deal after deal, and they have ultimately broken every single one of those. President Trump's reaction to the missile launch today was more reserved as he told reporters, we will take care of it. The Recording Academy released its 2018 Grammy Award nominations this morning. Elliot Yang has more. This year's Grammy nominations stand out because of the diversity of the nominees, including women and people of color. In fact, only three white artists are nominated for the top four general categories, record, album, song, and new artist. Richard McKilvery is a professor at the USC Thornton School of Music who has voted in the Grammys for more than 40 years. He says diversity is not a topic on voters' minds. They want to know, can you play? If you can play, you can be in my band. I don't care what you look like or who you are, unless you're a jerk, but there has to be, you know, you can, if you're the best player I can find, you get to be in the band. For the first time in its more than six-decade history, the Record of the Year category features nominees all from racial minorities, including Jay-Z, who received a total of eight nominations, and Kendrick Lamar, who got seven. The Best New Artist of the Year category is usually by white men, but this year, the only white artist nominated is a woman, 
Julia Michaels. The Grammy Awards will be held on January 28th. For Annenberg Media, I'm Elliot Yang. Retired Los Angeles Kings broadcaster Bob Miller will receive a Lifetime Achievement Award from the Los Angeles Sports Council. Miller announced his retirement in March of this year. During his 44-season career with the Kings, he calls more than 3,300 games. The 13th annual LA Sports Award ceremony will be held February 6th at the Beverly Hilton. Tonight, temperatures will drop to the mid-50s with variable winds. Tomorrow, there will be a mix of sun and clouds with a high of 74 degrees. Temperatures will remain in the mid-70s into the weekend. The Los Angeles County Board of Supervisors today approved a plan to install portable toilets and hand-washing stations near densely populated homeless camps. The supervisors hopes, hope this will curb the spread of hepatitis A. The county has reported 32 hep A outbreaks, but no new cases in the last two weeks. In San Diego County, there have been 561 cases and 20 deaths. The toilets and hand-washing stations will be available as long as the hepatitis A outbreak lasts, which will likely be at least six months. President Trump is celebrating two victories today. A federal judge sided with the Trump administration in a dispute over control of the Consumer Financial Protection Agency. The decision allows the president to install his choice, Mick Mulvaney, as acting director of the watchdog agency. The day ended with a key Republican tax win. The Senate Budget Committee passed the tax bill along party lines in a 12 to 11 vote. The bill will now move to the full Senate for a vote. Republicans say it will decrease taxes for businesses and individuals. But the Congressional Budget Office estimates the bill will add almost $1.5 trillion to the national debt. Charities are also worried about how the tax bill will impact their donations. On this Giving Tuesday, Nuran Salehi visited a local food bank to find out how it will affect them. Giving Tuesday started five years ago as a way to balance the consumerism of Black Friday and Cyber Monday. Today, I visited the World Harvest Food Bank in Mid-City, L.A. This nonprofit, like many others, is at risk of losing vital donations that help the community. People benefit from us. Glenn Curado is founder of World Harvest Charities. And if the donations stop or it gets cut in half, I'm not going to be able to provide all this nutritious fruits and vegetables and clothing and, you know, incidentals and over-the-counter medication and stuff like that. Corrado was worried the new tax plan might bring down the number of donations the food bank will receive. And he may be right. The Republican tax plan doesn't do away with deductions for charitable donations, but it increases what is known as the standard deduction that a majority of taxpayers take because it is bigger than itemizing their deductions. Increasing it may mean most taxpayers won't itemize. Rick Cohen of the National Council of Nonprofits says this includes charitable deductions. A doubling or almost doubling the standard deduction, uh, that would put the charitable deduction out of the reach of 95% of taxpayers. Uh, so uh, there have been a number of projections as to what that would mean. And uh, most of what we are hearing is that that is going to result in a reduction in giving to the work of nonprofits of anywhere from $13 billion to $20 billion every year. For nonprofits like the World Harvest Food Bank, 
A drop in donations would mean less food for hungry families. A U.S. Army veteran, Sean Sukora, volunteers at the food bank. He says he volunteers there to provide food for his elderly neighbor, and that places like the food bank are needed. Basically, the government got to quit being so damn greedy, you know, and we the people need to wake up and realize that those three words mean us, not the government. And people. For now, though, charitable donations on this Giving Tuesday appear to be up. The nonprofit Times says contributions are up some 30% over last year. For Annenberg Media, I'm Nuran Salahiyeh. It's seven minutes after the hour. I'm Sam Newman. Thanks, Sam. Coming up on From Where We Are, the tales of Santa Claus spoils and Christmas heartbreak. The chairman of the Federal Communications Commission, Ajit Pai, today defended his plan to repeal net neutrality rules. He criticized Hollywood celebrities and tech companies who have been speaking out against his plan. Chris Perfett explains what's at stake. If you're confused about net neutrality, you're not alone. We've heard a lot about it, but it's easy to be confused about what exactly it does. USC journalism professor Jonathan Kotler explains. The way, the way it works now is that everybody who sends content over the internet sends it at the same speed that anybody else does. And by the same token, you, me, anybody else, pays the same rate uh, for whatever comes over the internet. It, it treats the internet and the internet providers as if they were phone companies. You don't pay more for one type of phone calls against uh, another, depending on, on who's sending the message. The FCC was created in 1934 in part to break up telecom monopolies was tasked with regulating utilities like phone companies who did business across state lines. As technology has changed, Internet companies have fallen within the FCC's jurisdiction as well. For many years, the Internet operated under the radar of regulation. Kotler says consumers will be the losers if the FCC gets rid of net neutrality. What this would do is allow Internet providers charge their customers more depending on the content that was being sent. Net neutrality remains important as a line between Internet service providers and content creators grows blurred. Internet service provider AT&T recently tried to merge with Time Warner, which not only operates Internet service spectrum, but also owns a media empire. Internet service providers say removing net neutrality will eliminate cumbersome government regulation. Aristotle is a small wireless internet service provider which says it is in favor of net neutrality. But Aristotle's Elizabeth Bowles says they don't want those rules to be enforced by the FCC. When you boil net neutrality down, there are three bright line rules, and they are no paid prioritization, no blocking, and no throttling. question really for my company is not so much whether those rules should be applied, because they should be. It is how can you do that legally without creating more damage than you intend. The commission is taking public comments on the decision and will vote on whether to kill net neutrality on December 14th. However, tech news outlets have also reported that over a million fake accounts have been flooding the FCC comments with anti-net neutrality sentiments. For Annenberg Media, I'm Chris Perfett. Rachel Parsons contributed to this story. Social media has been buzzing about the sex trafficking victim who has spent her adult life in prison. Leslie Ombries reports on how a documentary by two USC professors sparked change and a viral post that could mean freedom for the woman behind bars. A 16-year-old in Tennessee was found guilty for murdering the 43-year-old who bought her for sex. 
She has since then spent her adult life behind bars. Until recently, she was expected to spend the rest of her adult life there too. But the power of celebrity might intervene thanks to a viral Instagram post. Last week, pop singer Rihanna posted a photo of sex trafficking victim Centoya Brown, along with words of outrage about the American justice system's treatment of women of color. Since that post, other celebrities like Cara Delevingne, T.I., and Kim Kardashian have shared Brown's story with the hashtag FreeCentoyaBrown. This is not the first time the Brown story has been made public and sparked conversation. Between her arrest in 2004 and 2011, USC professor and documentarian Daniel Berman spent over 130 hours with Brown at her prison and put together Me Facing Life, Centoya's story. I've questioned out loud, how am I going to do this? How am I supposed to do this time? How am I supposed to spend the rest of my life in prison? His documentary, completed with help from USC professor Megan Chow, follows the aftermath of the young African-American's arrest and features scenes of her adjustment to daily life in prison. I realized that I had a tiger by the tail. She's very intelligent, incredibly articulate, and one hell of a story. And she was willing to open up so that I could really take on a whole big question of juvenile violence through one young woman's story. After the film's premiere, the Tennessee law under which Brown was sentenced was challenged. Attorneys who had seen the film managed to change existing policies. Now, juveniles found in prostitution would be seen as sex trafficking victims instead of prostitutes. But so far, this hasn't affected Centoya's sentence. Her parole hearing isn't scheduled until she's 69 years old. If Centoya Brown were tried today for the same crime, she would not have gotten the same sentence. Berman hopes that despite what prosecutors have said, a judge will soon see past Brown's crime and see its underlying cause in her humanity. The gentleman who prosecuted Centoya Brown sees Centoya Brown as a dangerous person. He does not see her as a sex trafficked individual. He does not see her as having complications. He just sees her as a very, very dangerous person. My feeling is we can look at a human being we're all human. We can look at any human being and we can see something. In addition to the hashtag, a petition to free Brown is making its way across the Internet. If the petition gains enough traction, USC associate professor and juvenile justice expert B.K. Elizabeth Kim thinks it could persuade the judge to rule in Brown's favor. I can't imagine like not influencing them in, in some ways. Um, if there's a huge public outcry about the justice or injustice of the case. Currently, the petition has 415,479 signatures to one. Until that time comes, Brown will continue to keep busy. She's working on her bachelor's degree through a prison program, and a capstone she hopes will help other children avoid the clutches of sex trafficking. Maybe this film, these issues revealed in this film, it can help another child. So another mother, another father, some other family doesn't have to go through that. That was a clip from Berman's documentary. We've seen viral content spark movements with Black Lives Matter and Me Too. Maybe this moment will allow Centoya Brown to walk free. For Annenberg Media, I'm Leslie Embrys. Now it's time for Ampersand. Ampersand. Sand. Oh. Covering Los Angeles arts and culture and everything in between. Industrial spaces can take on weird second lives, especially in Los Angeles. Reporter Tom Carroll has a story. When a rock quarry shuts down, sometimes a hole where rocks once were fills up with water and turns into a local swimming hole. 
sometimes it becomes a nuisance or an eyesore. But in Los Angeles, an abandoned quarry can turn into the Batcave. When the Los Angeles Stone Company built its Griffith Park Quarry in 1903, Los Angeles was hungry for granite. At the height of its production in 1926, the quarry produced 2,000 tons of crushed rock per day, becoming parts of Wilshire and Sunset Boulevard, gravel beds to lay Pacific Electric rail lines on top of, and part of the concrete mix for the breakwater in San Pedro. Literally, Los Angeles was built on top of the rock from the Los Angeles Stone Company quarry. When the Depression came, the quarry shuddered and soon began its second life as a Bronson Cave and Canyon. The quarry sat not more than a few miles from multiple film studios, just a short drive up Bronson Avenue. It didn't take long to pop up on the radar of filmmakers. Its craggy walls and desolate canyon provided a blank slate for narrative films. Filmmakers always struggle to keep Los Angeles from looking like Los Angeles. The script may say New York, but an errant palm tree might make a cameo in some distant part of the shot. Since Bronson Cave and the canyon connected to it are fully surrounded by craggy, naked rock, filmmakers could shoot however they pleased. The creature isn't far away. There are some hills to the north and a cave. But he's never been in this area before. How does he know iconic Los Angeles buildings of trees, filmmakers avoided the pitfalls of location shooting. The otherworldly nature of the Bronson Cave and Canyon was irresistible to directors. Constructing a set as large and intricate as a cave and canyon would have easily doubled the budget for most B-movies. In 1953, the cult classic sci-fi flick Robot Monster was shot there in four days for a budget of $16,000. With the swiftness of a deadly cosmic ray, the Earth is invaded by indestructible moon monsters. Their ghastly mission... We are lucky, as people who are interested in the history of Los Angeles, that movie makers utilize this space so frequently. We can watch films starting in 1919 with the serial Lightning Bryce and see a de facto documentary of how the Bronson Cave looked and evolved over time. In total, over 90 movies and 32 TV shows have either used Bronson Cave or Bronson Canyon as a filming location. It's the Batcave in the original Batman TV series, John Wayne captures Natalie Wood there at the end of The Searchers. Woody Allen finds a 2,000-year-old VW Beetle there in Sleeper. The list goes on and on. The Bronson Cave is uniquely Los Angeles. We see a barren, naked landscape, one that would be useless in most other cities and towns, reactivated through the film industry. The space itself continues to give back to the city long after its conventional function has passed. For Annenberg Media, I'm Tom Carroll. Construction of the L.A. Metro Crenshaw Line has brought a lot of changes to South L.A. The historically affluent View Park Windsor Hills neighborhood, nicknamed the Black Beverly Hills, has not been as dramatically affected as lower-income communities nearby. Intersection South L.A. reporters asked residents what impacts they've noticed in their area. Well, now it's not that many, uh, it's not that, that dangerous around here. We can actually go outside now and play with my kids growing up. We can actually go outside and play and do other things like that. But it used to, we couldn't back in the day. Getting more white homes, which is very good for everybody. You know, there's nothing wrong with anybody else, but you know, a mixture of uh, uh, different communities, different people, it's good. It's changing a lot and very fast. And it looks better, and it's, a good, uh, it's better for all, every single business here in, the, uh, in this neighborhood. Hard, it's like gentrification happens and it's not necessarily in itself a bad thing, but it's about like really what is the process that happens. So I do know that now that the Metro is coming in in Crenshaw, like there have been people who've been given 30 days notice and they've been there for like decades. And 
View Park Windsor Hills was recently listed on the National Register of Historic Places. Many residents take pride in the designation, while others worry it will attract new residents unfamiliar with the community culture. This is the last in a four-part series on gentrification from different neighborhoods in South LA. UCLA has introduced former Oregon coach Chip Kelly to head its football program. The Bruins hope their new head coach will end a 19-year drought since the program's last Rose Bowl game appearance. Jeffrey Dubroff has more. After four seasons coaching in the NFL for the Philadelphia Eagles and the San Francisco 49ers, Chip Kelly will return to college football. Kelly last coached in the Pac-12 Conference for the Oregon Ducks, where he led the program to its first national championship game. Kelly has a reputation for being an innovator and is known for his recruiting and high-powered offense. Kelly will replace former coach Jim Mora, the defensive-minded coach who was fired in his sixth season at UCLA. The change in coaching styles from Mora to Kelly worries Bruins linebacker Ramey Johnson, who says that while some members of the team are happy, Others are just waiting to see what happens. Um, some of a, some of us, mainly the defensive guys, you know, we're just concerned to see who's our coaches are going to be. You know, if he's going to keep our staff intact. I know for me, it's big to see if my linebacker coach is still here. ESPN reporter Shelly Smith sat down for a one-on-one -on -one with the new coach yesterday. Smith says that Kelly's style is exciting, no matter where he sets his focus. He's just, he's a stickler for detail. He doesn't let anything surpass him. He's going to take a look at those players and decide what puts them in the best position to succeed. Some Bruins like George McHenry believe that Kelly represents the beginning of a new era for UCLA football. I've seen the work he's done. I'm ready to see it done here at UCLA. It's going to be great. Fans of the crosstown rival USC have mixed reactions over Kelly's hiring. Max Morell doesn't think the hiring will shake up the Pac-12. Uh, as a USC fan, I'm excited. I was a Giants fan, so uh, I get to experience him firsthand as an Eagles coach. Don't think he's a very good coach at all. Lucy Graben, another USC fan, disagrees, saying Kelly's hiring is an interesting choice. Maybe it's UCLA's turn to like have someone come in and like have like a like a fancy kind of recruiting system that like gets a lot of attention in media and gets more people at UCLA. It'll probably be work out really well for them. UCLA offered Kelly a five-year contract worth more than $23 million. According to ESPN, Kelly does not yet have an official start date. For Annenberg Media, I'm Jeffrey Dubroff. Diana Postolacci contributed to this story. Fantasy football has become a popular virtual game for NFL enthusiasts. In this sound portrait, we hear from three people who partake in fantasy football to better understand the competition and its attraction. The my name is Eddie Garibay. I like to play fantasy football just for the competitiveness. Trying to, you know, prove to my friends, I guess, I'm the bigger football head. I play with my brother and my uh, old friend and the rest of the people, I do not know who they are. So it's kind of, I don't know who the other people are, but hey, as long as somebody's signed in and we're playing some, you know, fantasy, it's all good. <laughs> My name is Jessica. I work at the Cave Sports Bar. Sometimes it gets pretty busy in here. It's kind of fun to kind of watch people cheer on teams that aren't necessarily their favorite just because they're trying to, you know, get their receiver to score them their, those points. For someone who doesn't know how to play fantasy football, you're basically choosing players and depending on how they perform every week, you score points for you and those points all combined with other players that you have on your roster. 
had a league with all my girlfriends and we all played and it's kind of, it's become a big thing. Every, everyone does it. But it's just as competitive, it's still for money and um, I, you know, the game's played the same way either way. My name is Mason Kutzevan. I'm not those big gamblers, I'm just doing it for fun because I love the game. Because I play football. So when you win, you can talk to other people and <laughs> make fun of them. Be like, see, I told you. But it just gives you the rush, you know, like any other thing like, that you love to play. And I guess that's why they call it fantasy football. Serene Habishian reproduced that sound portrait. There's a growing movement to get consumers and businesses to ditch plastic straws. It's part of an effort to reduce plastic waste from landfills, streams, oceans, and beaches. Christine Dedeleon reports on this grassroots movement against plastic straws. Small things can have enormous effects on the environment. You've probably never given much thought to a plastic straw. You're getting a fountain drink and you take a straw because there's a lid with a hole in it and that's what the straw is for. By itself, your classic drinking straw doesn't look like much of a threat to the environment. But Americans use 500 million straws every day. And being small and lightweight, straws often never make it into recycling bins. According to the California Coastal Commission, plastic straws are among the top 10 items cleaned off of the state's beaches. A straw its life cycle might be being lost, falls out of a garbage can, out of someone's hands, it becomes, becomes trash on the ground, and then it begins its journey to the ocean. That's Marcus Erickson from the Five Gyres Institute in Culver City, which works to eliminate plastic pollution worldwide. When it gets to the ocean, it might wash out to sea, wash back on the beach. If it goes beyond the, the waves, the middle of the ocean, it then begins to get chewed by other organisms. It gets brittle and falls apart. Erickson leads research expeditions across the world's oceans and freshwater bodies to study the impact of plastic pollution. He says 8 million tons of plastic trash find their way into the oceans every year. We really plasticize our entire planet. What's amazing that for one species to, to do that, which we've changed the biosphere in a pretty short time. The movement against plastic drinking straws grew when a video of a sea turtle went viral. The video shows researchers painstakingly removing a straw that was completely jammed up the turtle's nose. Seeing that turtle get that straw pulled out of its nose for eight minutes was a visceral experience and absolutely excruciating to watch. And I can only imagine how painful it was for it to go through that. Trevor Cameron from Plastic Pollution Coalition is one of the faces of a growing movement to eliminate plastic straws. We have so many straws out there. And they seem convenient, but that's only temporary convenience. After that, they're gone. If one straw affects one sea turtle like that, just imagine like all the trillions of other straws that are out there in the ocean. Most restaurants and coffee shops hand out straws automatically. That's why chef and owner Marcel Vineron of Wolf Restaurant is spearheading a movement to convince other eateries to stop serving straws. He calls it straws suck. If you think about it, it's like a play on words. You actually, you know, use straws to suck and they suck because, you know, they pollute the oceans. Vineron says his servers now ask customers whether they want a straw, hopefully reducing the amount of plastic that gets wasted. I see the impact that it has, you know, on the beach 
beaches and into the marine wildlife. We think consumers should be able to have a choice. That's Keith Chrisman of the American Chemistry Council, which promotes plastic manufacturers. He says people shouldn't be forced to quit using plastics and then says the problem of plastic pollution can be easily solved if people just recycle. You know, I think one of the common misconceptions is around uh, what plastics are recyclable um, and, and, and how to recycle them. The problem is not all plastics are recyclable everywhere. Eric Bryan manages a recycling center near Cal State Long Beach. It is a very hard to process material and if I could get rid of it forever I would. I think the movement towards banning straws is a, a solid one. I don't think it's realistic at all. I, I, this would just end up hurting businesses rather than actually making a big environmental impact. Activists are not seeking to change laws or regulations. They are merely asking customers to change habits and restaurants and bars to change practices. For Annenberg Media, I'm Christine DeLeon. With holiday season approaching, families are looking forward to Christmas Day, when they will wake to presents from Santa around their Christmas tree. Reporter Brian Von Nielsen has more. Warning. For those who still believe in Santa, I advise to mute your sound as the rest of this story may include some traumatizing information. As Christmas Eve approaches, some speculate that Santa and his merry crew of elves are scurrying around the North Pole to get all the presents ready for those who decided to be nice this year. But as we all eventually find out, Santa Claus is not real. So in spirit of the holiday season, I asked USC students to share the time when they found out that St. Nick was nothing but an urban legend. When I was eight years old, I requested the Grinch plush toy from Santa and I wrote a letter to him and then one day I was being a little nosy person and I opened my uncle's bag, his work bag, and I saw my letter and that's when I realized that my uncle was Santa. It was honestly a really sad day. I was about 12 years old and uh, I came downstairs and my parents were just like fumbling around in the room trying to get everything like settled and stuff in our living room and that's when I just knew that it was them the whole time. I'm not really religious so my parents told me that Santa wasn't real when I was very young and in pre-K a kid in my class was super super Christian and I accidentally told him that Santa wasn't real because I just assumed everyone knew because my parents didn't tell me and then he burst into tears and I felt really, really bad and then his parents yelled at me on the play date for telling their kid that Santa wasn't real. For Annenberg Media, I'm Brian Boat Nelson. That's it for From Where We Are. This is our last show of the semester. It's been a pleasure spending Tuesday afternoons with you. We would like to thank all of the amazing journalists that contributed to the show throughout the semester. Some of the Tuesday regulars include Jeremy Thompson, Brian Boat Nilsson, Elliot Wang, Jocelyn Woods, and Rachel Parsons. We'd also like to thank Sebastian Grubaugh and Victor Figueroa for all their help this semester, our board operator Chris Perfett, our producer Garrett Schwartz, and of course, our faculty advisor Willa Seidenberg. They put in hours of hard work each week, and we are truly grateful for their efforts. For all of us at Annenberg Radio News on Tuesdays, we say thank you and see you next year. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Annenberg Media. Along with Sam Newman, I'm Charlotte Kim.